0: I'm in a really annoying healthcare situation where they're billing me for something I don't think I should be billed for. But then their billing office doesn't pick up the phone or respond to my messages. Well, that's a good tactic. <laughs> and now it's going into debt. Collect- like now I got the first letter being like, we're going to oh, send shit. this to a debt collector. And it's a great tactic. I'm going to pay. It's like a hundred bucks. Just don't pay it. I don't want it going into debt collection. Their tactics are going to work.
1: Hello, welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Glacius with Ezra Klein, Sarah Cliff. It's going to be an amazing episode. We've got a a really interesting white paper. Uh, We want to talk, of course, about the the tragedy in in Parkland, Florida, that's been dominating the news. Um, But also, we've been planning for a while, uh, Infrastructure Week. It's finally here, uh, as so many it's of us. Time. Infrastructure Week has, has never truly come for America, um, but the it true is.
2: Infrastructure Week was the friends we made along the way.
1: Indeed, <laughs> I thought it was in our hearts. Both. <laughs> <laughs> in, infrastructure Week to me will always live in in my heart, um, and uh, it's a good it's a good rich weedsy subject, um, I think, and want to talk about it some, and I think you know. You can talk about Trump's infrastructure plan, but the plan is almost so loose that there's no good way to discuss it. But I did think um, A.D. Tomer uh, of Brookings Institute had a good sort of overview of the plan in which he made the point that there's no real thesis to this program. Like, it does a lot of things. Some of them, I think, are actually reasonable ideas. Some of them are not. Um, but looking at it overall... That's a good quote from A.D. right there. Oh, yeah. If you want to read his words. So, so he says, you know, none of these programs include a point of view. Compared to the grand programs of our past, uh, New Deal's pursuit of electrical and telephone expansions, national interstate highway systems, water investments in the 1970s, there's no statement about what kind of economy we should build. And I think that's right, that, like, this program that Trump put forward, it's not, like, enormously surprising that a Trump policy initiative doesn't make a ton of sense. Uh, but at the same time, like... Trump's, you know, tax bill, clearly the idea of that was to cut the corporate income tax a lot. It's not clear like what this infrastructure plan thinks the problem is, except that the problem is that Donald Trump promised a big infrastructure program, but Republicans don't really want to do a big infrastructure program. So they kind of wound up with this this sort of nonsense. But I will say not in Trump's defense, but that I think this is generally true of what we've seen lately. There was a lot of Democratic talk in the late Obama years about, like, we should do a lot more infrastructure. But it was never, like, super clear why, like, specifically what were they hoping to
2: accomplish with, with any of the different Except for Obama-era it became programs. talked about as an economic stimulus measure.
1: Right.
0: But in terms of, like, what you actually want to, Like when you talk about immigration, when you talk about healthcare, like the things you're doing there kind of are more clear than what I feel like infrastructure can feel like a little wobbly. And I think
1: the infrastructure stimulus idea has always been a little bit. If you go back to the very beginning of the Obama administration and they were putting together a stimulus bill, there was a lot of sort of chattering from the outside of like, why is there so little infrastructure in this bill? Shouldn't this be like the New Deal where we built all this stuff? And Obama's economic team at that time, had what I think is the correct answer, which is that if you're trying to get trillions of dollars out the door and not just, like, waste the money on totally pointless shit, it's good to structure it through programs that are easy Channels, right? So, like a payroll tax holiday, or an enhancement of food stamps benefits, or some stuff that they didn't do, like having the federal government pick up some of the tab for Medicaid. All that stuff is very logistical. They did do that. Oh, did they? Even better. But but
2: you could have done work sharing, and things like that. I
1: I mean, there's lots of things you could do more of. But like, if you're trying to do stimulus, it's smart to just like look at an existing fire hose of money and just turn it up. Whereas overhauling America's infrastructure. I think it's it's like it's worth trying to make infrastructure better but it's also like it's actually
2: hard. So then let's premise that yeah politicians for a couple of years have been having this conversation and I think nationally we've been having this conversation without a lot of specificity. We talk all the time about America's crumbling infrastructure. You read all of these op-eds from Larry Summers and others about how bad JFK airport is, you know, people go to China and they're amazed by the train stations. But but let's back out here. First I think it's worth talking through when we say infrastructure, what do we mean? Because different people mean different things. And if you're going to begin with what's wrong with American infrastructure, I actually think you have to start there. Yeah, and and I think that's important. I mean, because sort of in the
1: phrase infrastructure, probably the core thing that people have in mind is transportation infrastructure. And then the core of the transportation piece is roads and
2: highways, right? So I, I think like, conceptually speaking. And that's also a federal funding works, which is another reason that's true. (laughs) Exactly. when, When politicians talk about the infrastructure bill, they tend to mean something called the surface transportation bill. Which is mostly highways,
1: right? And then if you think, though, about, like, what are the problems with American infrastructure, I would say it's almost backwards from that, right? That, like, if you talk to energy people, like, there is a genuine acute problem with the American electricity grid, that like it cannot handle a huge increase in renewable energy transmission, right? That because solar and wind power is more variable than like coal, gas and nuclear power, you would need a different electrical grid. And like that's a big, big, big problem. But it's so far from the core of like – the highway bill, that it tends to get lost in the discussion. I think rural broadband is more of a niche problem, like most people don't live in rural areas. But if you think about the future of the rural economy, it's like clearly an an acute problem, right? Like if people are not going to have fast, reliable internet – if they live in rural areas, then it's hard to see, like, what's the long-term future, right? Like, we did rural electrification for exactly that reason. Uh, But again, that's, like, very distant from the the core of the infrastructure problem. And if you look at America's highways, they're actually kind of fine. You know, it is true that there are some bridges in America that are in need of repair. uh, But there are fewer, right? Like, the, the share of American basic road infrastructure that's in need of acute repair has been declining for several decades, uh, which is good. And, you know, like, we could do more to fix that, so on and so forth. But there's not a comparable sort of emergency in that regard. And then the core issue with interstate highways is that we've already built the, like, low-hanging fruit, right? Like, if there was no highway between Dallas and Houston then building a highway between Dallas and Houston would be an obviously good idea. But there already is one, right? Like, we've already done that. You can drive from Chicago to Milwaukee. Like, all the most obvious roads to be built have already been built. Whereas, like, we haven't built a modern high-tech smart grid. We haven't built, you know, fiber to the home in in most of America, Uh, whereas most of the most valuable road projects already sort of exist. And we're dealing with annoying, like, congestion management, maintenance, the kind of stuff that, like, is not lead to fun ribbon-cutting ceremonies.
0: So I've been curious. I I wanted to ask you on this episode, like, what does the ideal Matt Iglesias infrastructure bill look like? Like, if we're not talking about Donald Trump's $1.5 trillion plan, but your plan, like, I don't
1: know. what What is it? What does it look like? So I, I really like I think that the idea of a big infrastructure plan is fundamentally misguided. I think that it would be much better to chunk this out into specific pieces and work on it in piece by piece. I, for example, don't have any like opinions or insights into what we need to do to improve utility regulation in America. But I think that sounds like an important problem that should not be like a multi-billion dollar tack-on to a transportation bill, right? Like that's not going to be a constructive way to deal with it. That Another thing that that I see people talk about sometimes is municipal water systems, uh, which are in pretty bad shape. I mean, you did a lot of that great Flint stuff. Yeah, um, the lead
0: situation isn't good.
1: Right. And it, But then when you look at lead, my understanding is that The water pipes is actually not the most acute part of the lead problem.
0: Yeah. No, that's true. I mean, a lot of it, it's like rebatement and paint. And, like, that's actually—even though that's what Flint focused on. What is rebatement? Uh, Rebatement is, um, like, fixing a house that was painted with—if you rebate a house, you kind of get rid of the lead paint and make it— safe for kids to live there. So
1: like it would be good to see a big federal lead initiative and like depending on the amount of money available and I I don't know I mean you'd have to talk to some technical experts but like there could be a water piece of that but trying to address lead as a tacked on part of an infrastructure bill again it it seems like a bad idea because like the lead paint in windows is a bigger issue but you're not going to get that in an infrastructure bill. Then if you do want to talk about transportation, right, you still have, I would say, three almost unrelated problems, right? One is you have to get states and cities to do a better job of taking care of the roads that they already have, because the most important roads already exist. But the natural inclination of elected officials is to want to, like, do something cool, Like build something new, not slightly increase the pace at which potholes get filled. And right now, federal money encourages the sort of
2: bias toward newness. Can you just say how that works? I think that's really important.
1: Yeah, so the federal government basically picks up 80 percent of the tab for new federally financed highway building and zero percent of the tab for maintenance of old highways. And there's a... The reason it's structured that way is this kind of like utopian thinking about state and local government, which is that they might not have the startup capital available to build new roads, but surely
2: would recognize that they don't want to overextend themselves. And 0% of the tab, it should just be said, for local road repair. Right. Which is— we also drive on those.
1: Yes. I mean, local roads are—I mean, the, the federal government's not involved in local roads on the people, theory that I, they're local. The one but reason yes. I bring that
2: up is that when people talk about crumbling infrastructure, whatever distinctions Congress makes about what it does and does not fund, people do not make it. Yes. When we think about what the infrastructure is, we're just thinking about what we use. And a big part of, as far as I can tell, the problem is that we keep pushing on this lever of federal highway funding— but talking about a problem that is different than federal highway funding. right? So, so I want to bring that up because it would not be impossible for the federal government to take a chunk of money, put it in a thing that is grants for local road repair. right? I mean, the government could do what they want. Or – right. I mean you could also just say – I
1: mean I think you could step back and like look at like first principles here. It's like, like what are we trying to do here, right? And like the original purpose of the federal highway funding vehicle was to encourage the creation – of the national highway system, I think it would be reasonable to say that like we have accomplished that objective, right? Like if you are inclined to take a multi-week road trip across the United States, like you can get anywhere. Like it's great. It's a it's a tremendous human achievement. But we have done that already, right? And you maybe just want to give states unrestricted money so they can do whatever, or maybe you wanna have an incentive program for them to to repave local surface streets or maybe you just want to eliminate federal highway funding altogether and, and, I don't know, shore up Social Security. There's no good reason that the sort of basic paradigm that was established in the 1950s needs to just like continue forward indefinitely. But at the margin, we continue to be spending federal dollars on building new highways rather than on maintaining the core elements of the system that exists. I'm normally not a big believer in like the D.C. New York media bubble, but it happens to be the case that New York has the number one mass transit rail system in the United States in terms of ridership, and D.C. has number two. And like to a first approximation, nobody outside of those cities uses rail mass transit in the United States. But it's a really big deal where we live and where A lot of other journalists live. So the problems in the New York subway and metro often get burbled up into this idea of federal infrastructure. Maybe you would like to see the federal government do something useful about the ongoing operation of incumbent rail transportation systems, but the actual federal infrastructure vehicles don't do that. So I think it would be good for somebody, I think probably state governments, to make that stuff Function better. Maybe there's a constructive role for the federal government to play. But I do think a fallacy that people get into is they'll be like stuck on the F train in New York and they'll want it to be better. And they will think that a big increase in federal infrastructure spending is going to help them with that problem. And like it won't. Like none of the federal money. Is going to ongoing maintenance and upkeep of existing old subway systems in a handful of American cities. Most of the money doesn't go to mass transit. The mass transit money doesn't go to that kind of thing. It's a serious problem, but it's like not a problem Congress is going to tackle.
0: It's also inc- an incredibly expensive problem in a unique way in the United States. One of the things you shared with us before. This episode was um, this list of a cost per mile of laying. I think was it just light rail or undergrounds? Sub- was it underground, underground subway? subway? Yeah, yeah. subway. Tunnels. And the costs in the United States are asked are astronomical in a way that doesn't even compare to other countries.
1: Right. I mean, this is like this is uh, Alan Levy, who is a an Israeli guy who's originally a mathematician, has now become a sort of full time transportation writer and consultant. Did. The original work on this really back in in two thousand and eleven and it 's amazing how much of a difference like sort of one amateur has made, starting by just cataloging what was being spent by different countries on different things. it started to make a difference. There was a, a big investigative report in New York looking at it but here 's the basic facts right New York spent one point seven billion dollars per kilometer building the second avenue subway. And everybody has sort of always known that was a lot of money. But New York people would be saying like, well, you know, like it's a big city. It's an old city. like they that's, Dig really
0: deep in the ground. There are go,
1: unions. Right. They've got unions. But like Paris spent $230 million per kilometer uh, on, on Metro Line 14. Berlin spent $250 million. New York is not older than Paris or Berlin. Uh, it is not denser than Paris. Uh, it does not have more
2: unions. Right. It does not have more unions. There's a, a, a nice note in there that Italy spends a lot less than us and it's not like the Italian government is free of corruption.
1: <laughs> right. Yes. I mean, and th- this is a shocking thing is that like I like the Paris comparison just because a lot of Americans are broadly familiar with Paris and, you know that it exists and is a big old density. Uh, the really cheap ones are in like Naples is 130 million, Milan is 110 billion. 110 million. 110 million. Uh, Madrid is the the sort of world champion at 65 million. And again,
0: um, New York's one point seven billion
2: billion, right? And and but to, to use a, an example closer to home, uh, something that you had mentioned in a piece is that L A has recently been constructing a fair amount of underground subway, and while it is not as cheap as the continental Europe players, it has been a lot cheaper than New York.
1: Yes, I mean L A has gotten down to about half of New York costs. Getting down to half, which that's is a good, <laughs> which is a big L A. Yes, I mean, which that's is a
0: billion dollars saved. That's, yes, that's which good. is a big
1: difference, and. One reason for that seems to be that precisely because L.A. does not have a lot of experience with this kind of thing. Uh, wh- one of the things that New York Times investigation, they were looking at the east side access tunnel rather than the Second Avenue subway. But the union labor agreement that they have there, it just seems to have like not been updated in any way since like. To 1880s or something like one guy's job is to operate the elevator that gets you in and out of the tunnel
0: i think they made a comparison to spain where the same equipment is operated that's operated in that project by 25 people is operated by like nine or
1: so right i mean in spain. and that one i mean they have at least like a kind of fake safety rationale for but but they just have these useless extra staffing jobs in the new york agreement so you know Part of New York's, like, extraordinary cost seem to be these old labor agreements. But all throughout the United States, we're just spending much more than continental Europe or or Japan would. And, you know, that makes a real difference. If If you are a proponent of more mass transit expansion in the United States, the fact that France can build three times as much track for your dollar I think it's the wrong way to think of that as like what well, we could save money if we could do it at French levels. It's that if you could create three times as much track for the same amount of money, you would build probably more than three times as much track right? Because it, you would get more done for the money available. But because you were getting so much more done, the project would benefit way more people. And there would be a lot more political enthusiasm about like who in Los Angeles, they've had these big sales tax increases to pay for the expansion of the LA Metro system, um, which is good. But you know, if you could get two or three times as much for that amount of money, many more people would feel happy about paying the higher taxes because many more people would get some kind of useful transportation
2: benefit out of it. So could I pull us sort of back up here for a couple minutes? Way back. Out of the subways? Which is to try to think about this as a a rubric for when you're looking at infrastructure bills, when you're hearing politicians talk about infrastructure, because something that, that you're hearing us discuss here is that there is a lot of Movement in this debate, some people talk about crumbling infrastructure, then they'll offer a proposal to build a new infrastructure, which is not the same thing. So I think that one way to look at it is that when you're talking about infrastructure, you can be and if you're thinking comprehensively, should be talking about three things simultaneously, but but keeping them separate in your head. One is what to do with existing infrastructure and particularly the existing infrastructure that has maintenance costs that are not being paid, and there you're thinking about. A lot of actually local systems, you're thinking about local roads, you're thinking about local transit, you're thinking about water systems, things like that. Then you can also be talking about what is the future infrastructure we need for the economy either that we're in or that we think we're going to be in. Maybe that's more transit in cities that have become dense but don't have the the transit infrastructure for their either current or projected density. Maybe that's rural broadband. Maybe that's smart grid technology. There's a bunch of things that we might want to have for what we are becoming and we don't have. Um, And then you should be thinking about part. In all of it, but but particularly I think here we're talking about transportation, the efficiency of our building. How do these projects get, get done? Are we able to, to fund them in a reasonable way? Why is New York so expensive? So these are all questions. You could imagine a very big infrastructure bill that only deals with one of them, yes. right, but would be a hugely transformative thing for America. Right now I would say that the Trump bill doesn't really deal – in a comprehensive way with any of them. Um, I don't think it's a point of view on future infrastructure and I don't think it does infrastructure. I don't think it does all that much on efficiency. It does a little bit on existing, but it mostly pushes more highway development, which does not seem to me to be what we need. But 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 this is where I think the conversation should be thought through and you know as i've been reading on this and and looking at it i've become more and more convinced that just a big part of the problem is that we have this conversation where we talk about there being this need to fix crumbling infrastructure and then really quickly slip into something exciting like talking about high speed rail yes and 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 that that i think is going to be a tell going forward for for kind of all all sorts of politicians Um, I would like to see a good plan to deal with crumbling infrastructure. And then I would like to see a good plan for the infrastructure we haven't built. To be fair, I think that some of this was embedded in the initial stimulus thinking. Um, You did see plans for maintenance and you did see plans for things like high-speed rail. But because that was done in such a quick way and it was only on a a couple-year timeframe, it's not a consistent long-term approach to infrastructure in this country. And it's certainly not a consistent long-term approach to maintenance in this country.
1: Yeah, and I do think, I mean, this is, It's like such a boring centrist viewpoint, but like it's hard to do this absent some kind of political consensus, right? That it's like you can say, okay, well, we want to put, you know, a down payment on high-speed rail construction in our stimulus bill. That's super reasonable, like first start to a national high-speed rail program if – The political system is, in fact, committed to the construction of a national high-speed rail system, but, like, it's not, right? So you're going to end up with a down payment on nothing, basically, because it's not the first step to the construction of a national high-speed rail system. It's just a thing that was, like, in vogue for a couple of years because Joe Biden likes trains. And then
2: it'll be invoked as a reason not to build.
1: Yeah, it'll become a reason not to build things, blah, 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 down. and, And, like, it's just... It's hard. And I I do think on some level that, you know, state governments are going to have to be the leaders on much of this kind of thing. Um, You know, I don't know how well at the end of the day the California high speed rail project is going to work out, but it's the right way to think about it, that like either this is important or it isn't. If California voters think that it is important, like they should find a way to get it done um, and not, you know, sort of spend their time waiting for for Congress to to ride to the rescue on that front. There are some things that only the federal government can really do effectively. I'm not sure that build transportation infrastructure is actually on that list. Um, You sometimes need coordination between states, but that'd be like maybe two states, not 49 of them. Um, Again, as you say, like, the interstate highway system is there, right? Uh, the the one thing that there has to be, clearly has to be a federal role on, is the air traffic control system, which is a mess of its own making, but also, I think, not what's interesting to people.
0: But I have a question about train politics. So as we've been talking about, it's a lot more exciting to like build something new than like fill a pothole. Yeah. So on the one hand, like that should and you know, the Technology does exist out there. A lot of people ride trains in Europe. They go, wow, these are these are great trains that don't exist in our country. How do you think about—like, that seems like a cool, shiny object that I would expect politicians to want to throw some amount of money at. And, and it's also, you know, it's different than the highways in that it doesn't exist yet. Like, aside right. from the Northeast Corridor, it's pretty hard to get around this country— By train in the way that isn't true in a lot of our peer countries. And it seems like the type of thing that is like big and shiny and involves ribbon cuttings, like the type of things that politicians would either at the state or federal level, like be excited about putting money towards. Yeah.
1: And I mean, I mean, they are doing a big intercity rail investment in California, uh, which is not a coincidence. Um, You know, the Northeast Carter, by far the most just promising like passenger rail corridor in the United States is from Boston to Washington. It's not just that we have the infrastructure, but like the actual layout of the cities here is very good for trains. And we have, you know, it's not like the most amazing technology in the world, but Amtrak in the Northeast corridor is pretty good. Um, It gets you where you need to go pretty fast. It uses old routing of the trains, which means it can't go as fast as the fastest Chinese trains. But to make it faster, you have to like straighten out curves. And there's a sort of narrow local politics problem with that. There's actually a privately constructed new passenger train in South Florida that is opening up. I think it's first segment open now. The idea is going to be that you can go uh, from Miami sort of up the Atlantic coast of Florida, which is interesting. Their proposals to link the major Texas cities. Um, obviously, Texas has been very conservative state traditionally. Uh, Democrats have made gains there. I expect that's the kind of thing a hypothetical future Democratic governor of Texas will, will try to do. But America relies uh, on much more freight rail than Europe does. So Our tracks are actually being used, and freight rail is is really good. It has all the same environmental benefits of passenger rail, except for trucks instead of passenger cars. So, you know, some of this question is like, would it actually make sense to displace freight trains and replace them with passenger trains in, say, the American Midwest? And I don't know that there's a particularly compelling reason to think that it would. Uh, for, you know, whatever economic or environmental benefits you were hoping to get from from rail. All
2: right. I think we should take a break and then come back and talk about the aftermath of the recent school shooting. If you guys listen to podcasts,
1: uh, you must know about, about Blue Apron already. Uh, but these guys, they're the leading meal kit delivery service in the US. Not a lot of people know about the whole range of meals that you can eat when you cook with Blue Apron, but, but it's really cool. They've got strip steaks with potatoes and spicy maple collard greens, steakhouse inspired favorite with a delicious twist, chili infused maple syrup, uh, incredible ingredients and chef design recipes. Blue Apron lets you see what the power of food can do. You know, let me tell you, it's really cool. It's super convenient. They deliver fresh, pre-portioned ingredients step by step recipes right to your door. You can cook it in under 45 minutes. And what's really fun about it to me is that the menu changes every week based on what's in season. So you get variety into your cooking palette. I love to cook and I also love trying new things, but I often find life is busy. It's hard to actually think up new things to cook that are going to be good when you're also under time pressure. And Blue Brain is just an amazing solution to that problem. They give 12 new recipes a week. You don't need all 12. You pick two, three, or four recipes based on what you want, what fits your schedule. They send you only non-GMO ingredients, meat with no added hormones. they got a team of professional chefs that put a lot of care into creating recipes each week, and they are treating Weed's listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash Weed's. Uh, So check out this week's menu. Get $30 off at blueapron.com slash Weed's. It's Blue Apron. It's a better way to cook.
2: So this one is a hard topic um it's a hard topic that that we have discussed before on the show uh there was a horrible uh massacre in a florida high school it left about 17 people dead and in the aftermath of it there has been a surge of i don't want to call it optimism because it 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 comes in this tragic context but The survivors in this high school, which is Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida, they have emerged as. A really powerful and eloquent and sympathetic constituency for gun control. Um, David Hogg, who is a 17-year-old senior, has has given these statements where he basically gets in front of the cameras and says, "Listen, we are kids. You need to do something about this. Like, you need to protect us." There is a national high school walkout being planned. There are is a busing and then march to Washington being planned. And one of the questions that is raised is. Will this time be different? We have seen these gun massacres in America before. Um, there was the Las Vegas shooting uh, with a very, very high death toll um, not that long ago. There was, of course, a Sandy Hook massacre of young, young children. Um, and again and again, nothing happens. So is this time different? And if not, what could make it different? What does what, what this conversation look like? And and this is something, Sarah, that I know you've been following.
0: Yeah, and it's um it makes me think of the healthcare debate in a weird way where nothing was different until it was. Um one of the things I think I've learned covering the Affordable Care Act fight is there were decades of efforts to get some kind of national healthcare system and everything just felt doomed. Like things just felt like they weren't going to work. I was reading over some of the old blog posts I wrote when I worked at Newsweek during the original ACA debate. And I I was much more skeptical than I remember that this was going to happen because it just seemed like everything always failed. And then you had these moments that catalyzed actions in ways that I don't think anyone looking back could have predicted. Like I'm, you probably remember because you were covering it, Ezra, the, um, when a California health insurance company took away coverage from someone who had breast cancer, um, rescinded her coverage, she had all these bills, and all of a sudden like that became a really— catalyzing moment in a way that I wouldn't have seen it before. You know, I don't think at this point, you know, it is hard for me to see at this point, like the Parkland shooting is that moment. But I think one of the things that it it, it can be unpredictable, what is the turning point? Um, you know, I think if you're someone who, I think one thing that's important to keep in mind is the people who vote change, you know, the people who we're at this Parkland um, shooting are either of voting age, will be of voting age. People who, um, you know, NPR today this morning was say they're saying there's about 150,000 students who have been present at school shootings since Columbine, which is just a really big number. That's amazing. Um,
2: I mean, horrifying.
0: Horrifyingly, yeah. Um, and as those people grow up, you know, I, I don't think it's unreasonable to think think of the cleavages in this debate changing. Gun ownership is going down. The number of Americans who have personally been at a school that has a mass shooting, that's going up. Um, And so I think like the Optimist case, um, you know, I liked a Twitter thread from Alec McGillis at ProPublica who kind of wrote about this, you know, liberal nihilism every time there's a school shooting where you immediately say thoughts and prayers aren't enough and you expect Congress isn't going to do anything. And I think we've become so used to the shootings that they it almost like Congress gets a free pass in a way. Like the expectation is there won't be any action because there hasn't been action in the
2: past. So I have complicated feelings on, on, on Alex's tweet thread because on the one hand, I think that it is important to, to, to keep what he's saying in mind. The, the fact past results are not a prediction of future results. And um, journalists and, and just people in general we should not become fatalistic. We should not become nihilistic. That said, we should also try to, certainly in our jobs, describe reality as accurately as we can or as accurately as we understand it. As you say, nothing is different until it is. And one of the things that, that we saw in healthcare, but we've seen it on a lot of different issues I mean, tax cuts and, and so on what you need to have these big changes come together is a constellation of um, political power from a coalition that wants to make change. Prioritization and ideas. So, you know, the reason the Affordable Care Act happened is that liberal groups had been working on a lot of different healthcare proposals for a long time so that when they had an opportunity, there was actually a lot of unity within the Democratic conference about what to do. I mean, it wasn't exact, right? There were arguments about this in that detail, but, but there, was a, there was a lot of convergence in a way there wasn't when Republicans then had an opportunity to reform health care. Uh, there was prioritization. I think a lot of people believe that Barack Obama would have liked to do energy first, but the, the push in the Democratic Party was that if you get power, you do health care. And then finally, there was power. Um, the Affordable Care Act passed because Democrats had 60 votes in the Senate. They had um, however many in the House. I mean, they had very big majorities. I am skeptical that the Republican Party is going to be pushed to change its mind on gun control. But I do not at all think it's impossible, uh, given the way the past couple of years have gone, that you know, some Democratic politician wins in 2020 and has reasonably commanding Senate and House majorities and then there is some kind of school shooting as or some kind of other terrible massacre and a and gun control really does get prioritized. Now, remembering that, that this has happened before, the Democrats did try to make a run at passing big picture gun control, as did a number of states in recent years. Some states have succeeded. National Democrats did not during that period because a filibuster stopped it. But the filibuster has been weakened. There is more pressure on this kind of thing. So I think that if you're asking the question of are there prospects for Big gun control legislation in the next six months, a year—I think those prospects are pretty dim. Um, doesn't mean people shouldn't pressure, but but I, I don't I, I don't see it happening. But in the next five years, in the next ten years, th- there's a line that Bill Gates says that people overestimate what they can do in a year and underestimate what they can do in ten, and I think that's a, a good line in politics. The fact that something might not pass now is not a reason that action should not be taken now, that activism should not be happening now, that that energy should not go into this now, because what you're doing is setting up the structure for when there is an opportunity for that issue potentially to be prioritized and for there to be enough rigor and work done on it for the political coalition in power to know what to do. So I don't have a prediction to make about this,
1: but I will say as a journalist, as an observer of things, I have become very confused about the prioritization piece of things. I've observed, you know, since the 2016 election, right, immediately everybody, right, whether they're on the left wing or the right wing of the Democratic Party, immediately reached the conclusion that Hillary Clinton and the Democrats had, like, catastrophically failed to address, like, the core pocketbook concerns of middle-class Americans. But then also like progressive activists really want to do like yet another total overhaul of the American healthcare system. That's super duper important. But also, if you ask anyone on the left of American politics, like what's the most urgent problem we face? It's climate change. But also, it's completely outrageous that people who are living in the United States without legal permission are being deported by immigration and customs enforcement, and we, like, urgently need to legislate to legalize and protect them. But also, it's outrageous that politicians aren't acting on these school shootings. And, and this all feels very sincerely felt to me, but I don't think that there is any historical precedent for moving on that many fronts with the level of aggression that progressives have talked themselves into. But do political movements always have, like, a lot of stuff they'd want to do? Uh, no, no, no. I, I mean, it's not, like, unusual to have a big wish list, but I don't feel a lot of clarity. Like, I could have told you in 2008 that, like, Barack Obama had a long list of promises, but that the order was that, like, health care and maybe energy— we're going way ahead of immigration, which was something he was going to keep in his back pocket until such time as Democrats lost their congressional majorities. Because he thought, like exactly what, what wound up playing out, I could have told you was going to play out based on like reporting and journalism and speaking to people. Whereas now I have no idea, right? Like if I think that's also concerned. if power falls into Democrats' hands, like I don't know, and I don't think it's because I haven't like done the work. I think it's because the Democrats in Congress haven't done the work to decide like what it is they they care about. But I
0: don't I don't I think that's a really different situation when you have a president in power, when there's like a clear ability to make policy, particularly like when you had Democrats there with a 60 vote majority in the Senate, like that is a moment where you kind of have to like make the priority list, whereas right right now doesn't feel like that moment. I mean, I think if you ended up, you know, in 2020 with a, you know, Democrats controlling, you know, Congress and the White House, I think you'd see through an election campaign like the priorities start to emerge in the way they did in 2008.
2: Yeah, I agree with that. So one thing I think is interesting about the example of 2008 is if you just go back four years to 2004, it didn't feel like that at all. Oh, yeah. If John Kerry had won or if Howard Dean had won there was no way that healthcare was going to be their top priority, no way that energy was going to be their second most priority. I mean, it was Iraq at the top, and then, you know, there was some other stuff going on. But but these things change very dramatically. And, and that's why I think that if there is a big shooting during the election, for instance, mm-hmm. that could have a very big effect on this. By contrast, if we're in a war with North Korea, that's gonna have another effect on this. Absolutely. And, and it's one reason why I do think that. In the collection of things happening, when you talk about the work being done or not being done by congressional Democrats, I actually think that's important. Um, in two thousand eight, something that was happening behind—if you had asked me, why did I know that healthcare is going to be the why did I know healthcare is going to be the number one thing? It's that. Virtually all of the big things Obama wanted to do, not literally all of them, but certainly energy, certainly healthcare, certainly anything on taxes, was going to go through the Finance Committee. And the Finance Committee under then Chairman Max Bacchus had already said that its top priority and had already kicked off a process around healthcare. And Max Bacchus had already released a white paper that ended up looking a lot like the final Obama plan. And that is something where. I don't think congressional Democrats have done this. So if one one signal that I will take as a prioritization is particularly if Democrats win back Congress in 2018, what do their major committees do? What, when they begin to release agendas, do those agendas do? Now, there has been some efforts- (laughs) Committees? It's a word I haven't heard in a long time. (laughs) Schumer has released the Better Way agenda, which is a very pocketbook-oriented agenda. Um, But I- don't think that is seen yet as a real party agenda. Um, but but I do think the question is, does it seem that Democrats are converging around a certain set of ideas? You know, one reason, again, that Republicans managed to get tax cuts done is that there actually had been a lot of work on tax cuts happening in the Republican Party and in the Republican Congress for a long time. What yes. they ultimately passed was not by any means, exactly what Dave Camp had done before. I mean, it it really did evolve a lot and evolve in a kind of panicked way towards the end. But there was enough infrastructure built that that was really the easier lift for them. And so I I think if if you're trying to look for what sides will prioritize, it is where has a congressional work been done so that the president's chief of staff can go to the president and say, yeah, we can actually do this. This is not going to be a, a, like a super bloody fight where all of the moderates in the caucus are going to abandon you and you're going to end up, you know, with 51 votes and, a, and, a, and nothing even close to a filibuster-proof majority. But that, again, is why this kind of pressure matters, because there is a response to this kind of pressure. When you go back to healthcare, care, I remember, and you probably do too, Sarah, the place where Obama... Promise that healthcare would be his number one priority was at a Center for American Progress sponsored forum.
0: I don't remember the specific moment. You have a sharper
2: memory. (laughs) Well, so I I, I remember this, and they were pushing. I mean, they made a decision at this forum to like push the candidates on a healthcare. I think it was a healthcare pledge, if I'm not misremembering. And like that was notable for CAP because CAP had also in 05 brought out a big healthcare plan. I mean, like there was organizing happening within the Democratic Party sort of defined broadly. And I think the question is whether that kind of organizing begins to happen now. Is this something that happens episodically after each shooting or do big democratic interest groups begin to say, no, like we need to prioritize this. I want to promise. One thing you see, by the way, and this is, I think, a really good counterexample is the immigration community got burnt. They got a promise from Obama that he would do it in his first year. Uh, I I think that they would have you know, if the first year had gone better, I'd definitely like to do it in the second year. I I don't think they were just waiting till they didn't have a majority. They would have liked to keep that majority for longer. But nevertheless, they did not prioritize it. And and so the immigration community really made a decision that is not going to happen again. And they are demanding much clearer um, uh, promises. And, you know, they're really going to try to make sure you can't do that. And the question is, does the gun control community end up having that kind of weight?
1: But I think, you know, the flip side of that is, right, if you're asking me okay, I'm a Democrat, I need to run in some unfavorable terrain. So I want to establish a brand for myself as a, like a different kind of Democrat, you know, who's going to run in Montana or wherever. Like, what's a good issue to like break with the party establishment on? Um, It still seems to me that guns is like right at the top of that list that like and you can see that in Bernie Sanders's career. Right. That like fundamentally it will not alienate like the Democratic Party as an institutional mass would like still be behind John Tester, even if he adopts a conservative view on guns. Whereas if he adopts a conservative view on uh identity issues more closely tied to gender or ethnicity, people will be like profoundly Outraged at him. And if he doesn't support the party agenda on economics, it's like, well, how would you run in Montana at all on something like that, right? And that's where I just see a difficulty in a federal path forward on this, right? That if you look at the way the electoral landscape is shaped, like some Democrats, the pivotal Democrats, are going to want to have a reputation as not. 100% liberal on culture war topics. And if you are looking internally at like what culture war topic can I afford to break with the base on? Like guns just seems a lot more promising than abortion or immigration or anything else like that. And I think if change would come, it would come from culturally conservative people just like deciding that this gun thing isn't as important. Like really recently... Cultural conservatives would swear. They would like pound the table, blue in the face. They wanted to amend the Constitution. It was so important to them that if gay couples were in love, they'd not be allowed to get married, right? This was like a desperate threat to American society. Then they just like walked away from that a couple of years ago. And I
2: don't think they're going to do that on That came from a lot of pressure from the- It it uh, did. And organizing it. I just don't want to erase that work. Absolutely. But I mean, it wasn't,
1: I I just think like they minds changed, you know what I mean? I I mean, for work and and blah, blah, blah. But it wasn't like I don't see that happening on guns. And without that happening on guns, I don't see a path forward. As long as it's like constitutive to red American identity, if they experience it as a microaggression for someone to be like, hey, guns kill people, then there's no.
0: But I think that's actually I I think the comparison to, you know, gay rights and like the wave of laws that went through states um, changing those things is almost instructive in a way and that we go back and see that my understanding of the polling and hopefully I'm getting this correctly is that you have some big differences between older and younger voters and how they feel about guns and I think the people who vote do change and in a way it almost feels similar to me in the debate over gay rights over marijuana over some things we've seen change at the state level um over you know the past decade two decades really depended on a changing um uh, on a changing electorate and i think one of the things you definitely do see in the politics of um of gun control is that a lot of these are pretty widely supported that it's not necessarily you know political suicide to get behind these that there's a pretty big gap between the policies that Americans support and the policies that are moving through Congress. I think we talked about a white paper here a few months back about who legislators hear from and, you know, they might not be hearing as much from those people who um, who are supportive of some kind of gun control. But I, I I think, you know, to your point, Ezra, the Bill Gates quote about like what can change in a decade. It feels like on this issue, a a lot could change in a decade as there are more shootings, as you know, the people who are in those shootings are growing up and able to vote like the, you know, six year old. When was Sandy Hook? How long ago?
2: Ooh, I'm going to get it wrong for okay. memory.
0: I will get it. You know, at some point they will be voters. The kids who are in those classrooms, they will be voters. And I think that will eventually if there's an optimistic case for to be made, I think it rests a lot on. On shifts in who is electing people into office.
2: Let's take a break and go to our white paper because our white paper actually bears pretty heavily on this discussion. Graveline is
1: a great company, and Graveline is all about uncomplicating things that ought to be simple. And their value proposition is really simple. They go to the best ethical factories, they produce premium products, and they sell them directly to you without traditional markups. Uh, so you don't find yourself paying $50 for a shirt that only costs $7 to make. They've got like the basic stuff that you need. They call it premium essentials. They use the finest materials, and they tell you your real costs so you know you're never overpaying. They want you to know what you're paying for and why. They're radically transparent about every single in the process, from the materials they use to the ethical factories they work with. And because they sell directly to you, their prices are 30 to 50% lower than traditional retailers. Uh, so the clothes look better, they cost less, they last longer. they got essentials like the Cotton Crew t-shirt. It's exactly what they should be. Simple, stylish, made from quality materials. That's everything for, from their cashmere crew, men's Japanese Oxford, uh, slim fit jeans. Uh, my personal favorite, their twill weekender bag. It's basic stuff that works with any outfit, with any lifestyle, uh, at a really good price, really high quality material, great durability. These are timeless essentials. They're exactly what you're looking for. No frills, just quality. And right now, if you listen to this podcast, you can get free shipping on your first order if you go to everlane.com slash weeds. That's everlane.com slash weeds, everlane.com slash weeds.
0: All right. So we have a white paper that actually one of our listeners wrote and sent us and we thought was super interesting. Um, Lior Sheffer at University of Toronto, where he is a PhD student in political science. So thanks for sending it to us. Um, It is called Non-Representative Representatives, an Experimental Study of Decision-Making of Elected Politicians. And essentially what this does, it's kind of a unique paper in a lot of ways. It it looks at a lot of the psychological um, kind of er, irrational things that a lot of us do and looks at whether politicians do them as well. And I think it, it did not surprise me to see politicians acting in predictably irrational ways. It surprised me that they often act in even less rational ways than the voters that they represent. So there's four experiments here, and if we want to dig into them, we can. But there's two that really stood out to me that kind of got at this, you know, how politicians are making decisions. I think we often— like to think of legislators as rational actors. They're reviewing data. They're taking cues from their parties. Um, but there's this one experiment I love that they did, um, oh, risk preference, where <laughs> it turns out politicians are much more willing to take on risks with people's lives than their their voters are. So they run people through this experiment. Um, they call it the Asian Disease Experiment, which tells people there's this exotic disease coming to your country. It's expected to kill 600 people. You have choice A, which is no risk. It will it will save 200 people and 400 will die. But that's very certain. You know exactly what's going to happen. And then there is a choice B that does involve risk. There's a one-third chance of no one dying, two-third chance of everyone dying, And the people they're surveying, I should say, they talk to legislators in Israel,
2: Belgium, and Canada. Belgium and
0: Canada, Um, and and they find politicians are much more willing to go for the option with a risk to to go for the option where some people, maybe everybody survives or nobody is saved, than their constituents. That their constituents are much more interested in the option that has a little bit more certainty to it, and. There's just a lot of these four different experiments. We can go into other ones that you guys, if there's ones you guys want to highlight that are interesting, but it really suggests legislators acting often in very irrational ways and their decisions being shaped not as much as you would think by a prospective election, although a little bit, but a lot about how decision choices are are framed to them, and um, and yeah, that they have a lot of the fallacies that we that we
2: all have. So I have two big thoughts on this paper. One is that I really like the the research agenda here because it makes sense that the kinds of personalities that would run for yeah. office in, in some way or another would be different than the population at large. Um, for instance, they they say actually in the paper that we know that people who run for office have a lot more extroversion, that they're more open to experience. Um, it is reasonable to think that the sample of folks pursuing this somewhat unusual career path are somewhat unusual themselves. So I think that's a good it's a good place to begin doing experimentation. Um, the other thing, though, that, that I also wondered about it is these are results in, as, as we mentioned, Belgium, Canada, and Israel, and these are parliamentary political systems. That means that the people running for office are actually making it through a lot more party vetting than the people here, which... Given how our primaries work, our somewhat more entrepreneurial political system, actually made me wonder if these results would hold or if we wouldn't see more risk-taking uh, among American politicians, things like that. So so that's just – I want to note as a caveat to the paper that the different political systems may – and pretty different electoral systems may lead to different kinds of personalities being, being prized in politics. That said um, – a lot of this just seemed to me to say that that politicians are human. The the big places where they seemed to to differ was a little bit on risk, and then a little bit on sunk cost policies. They were more willing to just keep going with something that wasn't working <laughs> than everyone else was. But I I just the question that that. I think that we need to answer, because a lot of these were uh, putting politicians basically in into a place where they can consider a hypothetical scenario. My assumption is always that human beings, myself very much included, are, are irrational creatures. And so what we need to do with all this data we're amassing is try to build systems that help us be more rational. And so one question that I, I do think is a, a good one to ask off of this is, are the systems we have built, are the way politicians hear, hear from people and from constituents and from experts, are they likely to create more? more rationality or more risk tolerance or more status quo bias. And certainly in America, I do not think that we have a system that is easing these dimensions of the political personality i I look a lot of this and i think you know when i talk to these politicians i think that if you put them in a room and just gave them the choice to make they would make a better choice than they do through the political system where it just gets filtered through an intense amount of tribalization and partisanship and um, distorted information uh so i think that when you kind of match up what increasingly feels like Yes, politicians are as irrational as the rest of us mixed with they're often in a system where given fundraising and everything else, they get pulled very hard to one side or another. I think there's reason to be concerned. I mean, I guess the the most important thing in
1: here to me is that there's a certain style of argumentation that will go with like, aha, like free market ideologues say you should just let people do what they want. But like this behavioral economics research shows that if you do that, people will make all kinds of fucked up choices. So we should let the government decide. But like the government is just also full of the same fucked up people. I mean, which I think is common sense if you think about it, but like it's good to see it, you know, confirmed on some level. Um, And you do... I mean, as Ezra was saying, it's like you have to think hard about institutions and, like, what you're really trying to correct for in in some of these different kinds of of instances. I will say one thing about this paper is that the problems that they ask the politicians to consider, they don't really sound to me like the kinds of problems that legislators address in a practical sense. Like— So I don't know, like, how much we really learn from it. I don't think anyone has ever suggested that, like— the way we approach epidemic disease outbreaks should be subjected to like spot votes but by, I think there's by congress this... like we're, we're actually it is. kind of
2: oh <laughs> totally. Like, think the, about ebola
0: the sunk costs. I, I think whether to extend a program that's not delivering the results you want yes. i think legislators deal with that all the time oh, Yes, no. For for instance, costs... you might
2: enjoy our infrastructure discussion <laughs> yes, yes, in yes, this yes. Episode.
1: but i just to give some credit to American people, politicians, everybody, like we did establish the Centers for Disease Control as like a freestanding institution, which has budgets set like in non-crisis mode and where there is meant to be like a well of expertise to make these kinds of judgments with a fair amount of executive discretion. I mean, we're, we're just like, again, also like the military is like there on a, permanent basis we don't try to slap it together in the face of every emergency to be like what should we do now right they study these things um in some level like it's not not as bad as it as it might seem on on some of this stuff although i do agree i mean sunk costs is a big (laughs) problem in politics like any just like war stories from any administration trying to get congress to like just permanently kill off like any random grant program that exists there and like it's so hard to do like no matter how shitty something is like if it was created it was created by somebody and like the people who were behind it they're gonna fight for right it. and so, one of the
0: things this paper shows along with the sunk cost i think is relevant is a slightly stronger status quo bias among legislators than their constituents that when something is presented as the way things work um it's smaller than the other effects but that there is, you know, a preference for those sort of policies.
2: So one thing that I thought was interesting about all of this and is sort of metaphysically interesting in this paper is that the argument of this paper is that the citizenry, just people, exhibit what behavioral economics sees as these decision-making fallacies. They discount the future too much. They have sunk cost fallacy, et cetera, et cetera. And so then it looks at politicians. And in a lot of cases, what it finds is a more or less mirror of the population. I mean, a lot of the effects of difference in both directions are not big. But the idea is that this is a problem. The hope is that politicians are more rational than the, than the population at large. And so, you know, that we're seeing a problem here. But another way of asking it is that, you know, maybe behavioral economics is wrong or maybe what politicians are meant to do is reflect the wishes, whatever those wishes may be of the population. And so the fact that they have have a status quo bias that looks like the population at large, or you know, a future discounting that looks like the population at large. That isn't a bug of the system. It's a feature of the system. I didn't really know how to rate that because what was happening here was that they were subjecting politicians to long-standing tests of rationality that existed within the discipline. But the purpose of representative politics, well, yes, it is in part to filter what the public wants. It's also in part to reflect what the public wants. And so I think that reasonable people could disagree on how different folks should be. And and particularly given the difficulty of a lot of decisions that really do happen in politics. I mean, might you want politicians to have a status quo bias, right? There, there's a, a long um, history of political thought where some people say, yes, politicians should be very careful changing things about society and other people say no. And I come down differently on different issues but i just i want to note that because it isn't the case that irrationality in an economic sense is always something that politicians are there to correct for sometimes the public wants something that is different than uh what, what 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 the experts would recommend and you know sometimes they should get that
0: But I think some of it is just the result of, like, how we structure government. Like, this thing about being much less risk-averse, much more willing to take risks. If you think of someone who runs for political office, like, that's such a different way of obtaining your job. Like, most of us, you know, we go on interviews and we have this other job. And, like, it's fine if we don't get it because we have the other job. And politics is much more zero-sum. Like, you run and you get it or you don't. It's a very, very different way of just— living your life and pursuing your career um i don't i don't know if we want our you know i, I don't know fully how i think about this if we want our politicians to be people who, who are willing to take more risks we're like going to go into office but i think we're necessarily going to get those types of personalities just because of the nature of, like, what it is like to run for political office.
2: That is a part of this paper, by the way, that I believe least. They find that the effect of elections on politicians in these laboratory conditions is, like, lower than you would think. I have over the years, as you all have too, interviewed a lot of politicians in like quiet rooms where everybody's sitting and hanging out. And if you talk to them there, you would think elections have no bearing on what they do ever. Right. They're just sitting there cogitating about the public good. And then you look at how they act and elections clearly structure everything. So that is a place for the paper. I think it's not the papers. And I think fault. it's just
0: hard to simulate in a lab like the effect of an election. And people might say different things than they might act in a future situation this is
1: also a question where like the difference in the voting systems i think like may really invalidate the results like israeli politicians don't stand for election in the same way that american politicians do like they have a strict list type system so like people with a good number on their party's list sort of can't lose um i don't know i mean that it's interesting but yeah i mean i think i think Definitely you would want to take a take a harder look at that you also might be interested in taking a harder look at some other Vox Media podcast network podcasts. Today Explained, including Today Explained, are I, I, it's not award winning yet because there's only been one episode. It's only a I, matter of I, time, but it's going to be. It's a daily news explainer podcast uh, that you should definitely check out. Subscribe on Stitcher or wherever fine podcasts are sold. Uh, we've got other ones that are good too, but you know, really, you want that Today Explained. So with that, thanks to our sponsors. Uh, thanks to Griffin Tanner for uh, producing today, and we will be back on Friday.